I pulled out a book that I had, which is rare because I don't really have a lot of books in my house. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, we're kind of taking taking on a classic. Uh, We're taking a look at Dog Day Afternoon from 1975 and also talking about perspective. And to do that, I have a guest. And and since I listened to his appearance on War Machine vs. Warhorse, I now know to introduce him as Ben Zook, Human Being. So... Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a guest again. Uh, hi, Dave. Yep. Uh, you know, happy to be on. Thank you for, for introducing me as a human being <laughs> and not just going on about like, oh, I used to have a podcast, blah, 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 uh, something, something. So I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Uh, if they, you know, like what you have to say, is there someplace they can follow you like on Twitter or another social media account? Uh, yeah. Uh, I My Twitter handle is at ZukB, Z-U-K-B. And from there, you can find links to my letterbox and uh, my uh, Vimeo account. And there, there's all sorts of crap out there about <laughs> me. So. Uh, the glory of the internet. There's all sorts of crap out there about me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so before we get into the movie, um, do you have two recommend movie recommendations for our audience? Well, yeah, yeah, and for you, um, because... Yeah, we talked about this uh, before, yeah. You, you, you uh, were texting me yesterday, and you were telling me that this is the only the second... Uh, yeah. Sidney Lumet movie you'd seen. So I'm assuming the other one is 12 Angry Men. Good guess. Because everyone's seen yes. that in, in English class in high school and all that. Um, and all of movie. that, yes. Um, so I'm going to assume that you haven't seen Network, which Sadly, is... I have not. Like, unbelievably. That's one of the movies on the list when I looked at his filmography. I'm like, how have I not seen this? Now, yeah. that is definitely my favorite Sidney Lumet movie. Uh, and so I highly recommend that to you. Now, for people who maybe feel like they've seen a lot of Sidney Lumet's major movies, then the recommendation I'm going to go with uh, for them would be a kind of obscure movie from 1990 called Q&A with Nick Nolte, which I watched for the first time a few months ago, and I was pretty amazed at, at just how good it was and how I had never really uh, you know, heard it you know, you know, described as such. So... All right, now I have homework. Good. Yeah, that's that's good homework to have. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Sydney, Sydney Lumet, we will talk uh, in great detail about his work on Dog Day Afternoon after we take a break and talk about perspective. Okay, so today's psychology section is about perspective taking. And perspective taking is the act of viewing a situation or understanding of a concept from an alternate point of view. So just looking at it from someone or something else's perspective. So perspective taking can occur visually in that you can change your physical location to see things as another person does, but it can also occur cognitively in that when you can mentally stimulate the point of view of another's cognitive state. For instance, you can visualize the viewpoint of a taller individual, a physical state, or reflect upon another's point of view on a particular concept. That's the cognitive state. In other words, perspective taking is the process of basically stopping your own point of view for just a second in an attempt to see it how someone else might. 
Now, there's a number of ways and strategies you can use to take another's perspective. That could include imagining yourself in someone else's place, uh, using your own similar past experience to understand someone else's situation, or utilizing general knowledge about how people are likely to react in particular situations. The process doesn't really necessitate a form of affinity, compassion, or even emotional identification with the other person. So perspective taking can be used to gain an understanding of a given physical state or a situation after which a determination of appropriate action can be selected. So you don't have to go into it going like, well, I'm going to end up this way. I'm going to end up reacting this way. You can just see from another person's perspective and then make a decision. Perspective-taking ability appears to be greater in adults than children because adults are more able to correct and adopt the perspective of another person. And I think this is actually one of the things that sets humans apart. It's In my classes, it's been termed kind of the theory of mind, the kind of like we can think about thinking. We can put each other – we can put ourselves in other people's positions like a dog or a cat or what other, whatever other creature you pick cannot put itself – in in your situation and try and pretend like they are there and make choices based on that. Only human beings can do that. Now, you might hear all this and start thinking, well, isn't, just, isn't this just empathy like you did in your Blade Runner episode? It's actually a little bit different. So perspective taking is exclusively the process of taking the alternate point of view. For example, you can perspective take a fellow individual's thoughts and feelings. However, it doesn't necessarily have to lead to feelings of empathy. That determination gets made after the perspective taking process has concluded. As a demonstration, uh, 18th century Scottish philosopher Adam Smith and 19th century British anthropologist and sociologist Herbert Spencer. So they both wrote about perspective taking as a, quote, cognitive intellectual reaction and empathy as a, quote, visceral emotional reaction. Because this differentiation gets overlooked a lot of times, perspective taking is usually like talked about alongside empathy. So for this reason, the use of perspective taking and empathy as synonyms is is really prevalent within the scientific literature, but they are different. Perspective taking is the kind of cognitive or physical action. Empathy can be the reaction to what you experience. Now, within the scientific community, there's a push for a more specific term. There's been a push to kind of differentiate perspective taking and empathy. Uh, for instance, some uh, a group uh, a group including Ferrant, Divine, Mayberry, and Fletcher set a definition of empathy that includes the perspective-taking process. However, they refer to it as cognitive empathy. Similarly, Ashton and Fuhrer use the term affective perspective-taking to describe the empathy construct. So even though researchers are striving to differentiate these processes, those, those two terms still do get kind of meshed together a lot. Okay, so why should we perspective take? What are the benefits? How do we apply it? So several studies have indicated that perspective taking has a positive impact on social interactions and relations. It tends to bring awareness to issues between groups that are very different. So if you can consider the perspective of an out-group member, that will increase identification with those people, which in turn increases the likelihood of these dominant group members to perceive a behavior or a situation as discriminatory. It also facilitates what's called in-group, out-group exchanges. So if people uh, with people within your group and outside of your group are able to perspective take about each other, this actually tends to reduce the stereotype bias and will decrease the kind of bias inside the group as well. It also increases people's willingness to interact without group participants. So 
if you can't perspective take, you're probably not even going to have this intergroup contact at all because you'll keep this distance. But if you're able to perspective take, you be you would be a lot more willing to interact. It also provides an advantage in negotiations. Perspective taking allows negotiators to view the, the view the dynamic from the opposing side's point of view. And this is proof that perspective taking is not necessarily about empathy because if you're in negotiating, you're trying to find weakness. You're not you're not out to, you know, make them feel better or see things from their point of view for this very uh, very empathic reason. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about perspective taking. So when we study anything in psychology, we tend to think about the tasks that we do as if they were kind of built into our brain in these little modules kind of dedicated to these tasks. So we talk about memory and assume that there is a, a spot in the brain that helps us remember information. We talk about attention and we figure there must be these brain systems that help us pay attention. But as our science has kind of grown and matured, it becomes clear that there's nothing really that works like that. There's a bunch of different systems that help us with a variety of tasks. We now know, for example, that there's not just one kind of memory. And we even did an episode on this when we did uh, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. So some parts help us remember over the long term and, and some help us to hold on to information for just a couple seconds or minutes. Other memory systems allow us to create and execute habits or to predict what's likely to happen in an upcoming situation. So there was a paper in the Journal of Experimental Psychology um, by Riskin, Benjamin, Tullis, and Brown Schmidt that took a look at perspective taking as a task. So there's a classic study from Krauss that found that when people were asked to give directions to a landmark in New York City, depending on who they talked to, they changed the way they spoke. So for people they thought were living in the city, they gave less specific instructions because they assumed people would know the basic aspects of navigating the city, like how to get uptown versus how to get downtown. So now they're looking at whether perspective taking is a single ability or a task that involves a bunch of different systems. So they looked at individual differences in performance on different tasks that require perspective taking. So if it's a single ability, then people good at one task should probably be good at, at most of the other tasks as well. So they did, they selected three tasks for people to perform across multiple sessions. In one, they, the participants would see a series of 80 words, and then they were asked to generate cues that would remind them of those words in two days. This required people to take the perspective of themselves in a few days to figure out what would remind them of the words they saw. Now, the second pair of tasks includes uh, conversations between two people at different computer screens in separate rooms, and one person had to tell the other what object on a 3 by 3 grid to click on. On each grid, there was one square that was covered so that one of the participants couldn't see behind it. However, the one that could see behind it knew which square was blocked for the other. So one square is always covered. Now, with these grids, the speaker was shown one of the objects and told that the other participant would be able to find that object on their grid. The object they were supposed to talk about was circled. The key question was, when would participants use an adjective along with the name of the object to help the other participant? So in some situations, they made the object large to distinguish it from, from the other objects, and sometimes they didn't. So in some of these situations, there are two of the same item, one big and one small. So they need to use that adjective to, to describe it so you could distinguish between the two. And sometimes there's no need to use an adjective because there was only one of that object. But there was one situation where in the middle, there are two of the same object, but only one is visible to their partner. So from the speaker's perspective, it should be called 
a large whatever, but if they recognize that their partner can only see one, then they don't need to use the adjective. So then the participants who heard the instructions would search the grid to find the object. Participants in the study were connected to an eye tracker, so it was possible to see what they were looking at as the task progressed. So on top of these three tasks, the participants completed a bunch of other measures to help understand what factors would lead to good performance in perspective-taking tasks. It's not enough just that we're showing perspective-taking, but what goes into it. So it included tests of executive functioning, which was naming the color of the font in which color words are presented, uh, working memory, which is the amount of information you can hold in your mind at once while doing the task, and long-term memory skill. And that was just done by memorizing a list of words and how many they could repeat. So on average, participants were pretty good at all the tasks across the board. In the main exercise, they tended to use adjectives when they were needed and omit them when they were not necessary. So that shows they were taking perspective. They found the object that their partner was talking about and looked less at the objects that were hidden from their partner. So again, taking perspective. However, there were also substantial differences on these tasks across participants. So the correlations in performance across all three of the tasks were low. So doing well in one of these exercises didn't necessarily predict how well they would do in another. The measure of executive function did not predict individual differences in performance on on any of the tasks that well, and individual differences in working memory predicted how well people would do in the memory task and also in the task which they were the speaker. Overall memory performance did predict how well people would do on the memory task in which people found cues for themselves. None of these measures predicted how well people would do when finding objects that were shown and labeled for them. So what does this really all mean? So perspective taking is a really complex task and involves a bunch of different abilities. You have to figure out what information someone else has access to and then use that information to inform what you do on the task. It appears that this recruits many different abilities depending on the specific nature of the task you're doing. So even though we have this single term, perspective taking, it encompasses all these different abilities. So we can't say if if you're perspective taking, you're using these, these parts of the brain, executive function, working memory, whatever it be, because all these tasks use different things. But one ability that does seem to be really important across at least a few of the situations is working memory. And this makes perfect sense because if you're going to take another person's viewpoint, you need to be able to keep in mind both what you're doing and what they know at the same time. The less information you can hold in your mind at one time, the less able you are to keep track of what everyone else knows. This study further demonstrates how careful we have to be at figuring out kind of the basic units of thinking. There's a tendency to just focus on the tasks that we perform and assume that our brain is organized in a way that respects these tasks in a purely logical, simple way. But our brains are really, really complex. So a reason why a study like this is done is that What we tend to do to examine what parts of the brain are working when we do a certain task is we do neuroimaging studies. So we look at kind of what lights up um, on the on the scan when when they're doing the task. But with something like perspective taking, it's not a single thing. So you're going to get these different reactions. So you can't say there's these certain brain regions that are associated with perspective taking because it's this complex task that involves a lot of specific abilities. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. We'll take a little break and then bring Ben Zook back to talk about Dog Day Afternoon. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, so we're back to actually talk about the movie now. We're back to talk about Dog Day Afternoon. So uh, this is one of those movies that has been a blind spot forever. It's like as an Italian-American, it's a little shameful that I haven't seen like one of Al Pacino's most well thought of uh, performances. But this was my first introduction to Dog Day Afternoon, although I don't know you can have a different kind of introduction than first. But what about your history with Dog Day Afternoon? Um, I don't even remember the first time I saw it. It, I, I believe I saw it on cable when I was like really, really young. And I remember it being a movie that I, that I had thought I, I had seen for, for many, many years. And then like, you know, when I was really starting to get into, you know, movies and stuff, uh, I went back and rewatched it and realized that I hadn't ever really, you know, appreciated it, uh, in, you know, on that level. Um, so, you know, I've seen it a number of times. Yeah, it's one of those movies that I, it feels like when people ask, have you seen Dog Day Afternoon? Like it's such mm-hmm. – it's so well known that you just – you want to say yes even if you haven't seen it. Like I've had that reaction. Like of course I've seen – wait a minute. No, I somehow totally missed that. Uh, but I'm so glad that I got to watch this for the podcast because I really enjoyed this. Like it was not what I expected. Literally all I knew walking in was Al Pacino was in it and it took place in a bank. And that was my whole introduction to it. Uh, and it definitely is a very different movie than you would expect based on that premise. When you have kind of one of the the biggest stars in the world at that time because this is post-Godfather – so you think like you're going to cast Al Pacino in kind of the smooth talking or the very sure of himself role. And there's a little bit of that, but he clearly doesn't quite know what he's doing. And you get that from the very beginning of the film, which is something that really threw me for a loop as I was watching. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, there's another movie that Sidney Lumet made that I believe came before this uh, called the Anderson tapes with Sean Connery. And that is sort of a more typical uh, heist uh, crime movie where it's all about crafting the, you know, the perfect bank heist and the perfect, you know, steel and all that. And that's what a lot of, you know, this kind of genre, you know, was. Um, and so seeing them come in and not really knowing what they're doing, having their third guy, you know, drop out immediately, uh, all that, all that's the, the, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Sal played by John Cazale, not knowing that Wyoming, uh, is in a country uh, and like, <laughs> one of my like favorite lines in the stuff. whole movie. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and even, even just Sonny getting dressed down by the lead uh, female bank teller, you know, 10 minutes into the crime, you right. know, say you didn't have a plan or anything. He's like yelling at her <laughs> the same way his mother probably would yell, yeah. uh, you know, at him. And, 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 you know, it's just, even, even today, this is really, you know, this comes off really refreshing. There hasn't been a lot of movies about, you know, inept criminals pulling, you know, trying to pull off big things. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into the direction. So Sidney Lumet, who's your guy, apparently, uh, one of your favorite directors. So what did you think of his work here? Uh, I mean, yeah, I love him. Um, his work here, you know, is excellent. It, you know, it's seamless. It's, you know, it, it comes off as effortless. And yet there's so much that he's doing. For example, you know, we got this great opening and yeah. you never think about it. You never because you just, you know, you get the, all these shots and you're, you know, you but you never really think that it takes you get like 60 seconds, 90 seconds of the shots before the titles even appear and the right. titles appear when we first see the bank. So these opening shots aren't just like filler, like like he's actually communicating things to the audience about how, OK, this is taking this is taking place in the real world. Mm-hmm. This is taking place, you know, in, in, in this world where dogs are chewing up trash on the street uh, and, and, you know, and, and all that stuff. Uh, and, and so 
I, I'm always just amazed by by how many great Sidney Lumet movies there are out there. Yeah, and I think that that opening sequence was particularly impressive to me. One because you don't see you know, opening shots like that, that really take their time and really Mm -hmm. set the mood of the film. Like you do get this kind of lazy, hazy uh, mood to the film and it, it sets it up perfectly because yes, it is about a bank robbery, but it's not, it's not an action film. It's not a shoot 'em up. I think there's two gunshots in the entire film. The film is surrounded by guns. You know, you got like Two, three hundred cops outside. They're all got their guns drawn. You have automatic weapons inside and there's like one warning shot and one kill shot and that's it. And that, that actually takes gut. And granted, this is based on a true story, which is strange enough, but it, it takes real guts to make a bank robbery movie that has very little action and is all just suspense building and character work. I also really like there's a bunch of shots, um, kind of on the roof with the with the snipers, which I think is a really smart decision and something they didn't necessarily have to put in there, but to give you this kind of heightened sense of danger. Like even when some some kind of comedic things are going on inside, like not laugh out loud funny, but kind of, you know, shake your head ruefully funny like is going on. But then you have this constant, either the snipers up above or the, the news and the police helicopters circling. So you're constantly aware that despite what's happening, like this is a really serious situation. I think that sort of ties into, you know, uh, you know, I guess what we've defined as, you know, sort of the theme, you know, right. of this movie, which was actually really challenging and, and tough. Um, you know, I think when you asked me, like, like, you know, what uh, is this movie really about and all that, um, you know, it's not a movie that wears its themes on its sleeve. Like there isn't like an obvious answer or anything. It really is more concerned about having like a very amoral uh, you know, perspective on what these characters are doing right. and not really judging either, not judging any of them, not judging Moretti, uh, you know, the, 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 the police detective played by Charles Durning, not judging uh, Sal, not judging Sonny, uh, not judging any of the bank tellers or anything. You know, mm-hmm. there aren't, there, there aren't really, a, there aren't really a typical villains at all, uh, you know, in this. And so when, you know, when you asked me that, I wasn't really sure what direction right. to go in. Um, and I actually, okay, so I actually, I pulled out a book that I had, which is rare because I don't really have a lot of books <laughs> in my house. Um, <laughs> but I pulled out a book called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, which is, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, it's a big book that everyone reads in film school and everything. And so I read it many years ago and there were some things that stuck out, uh, to me. And one of the things that I'd forgotten about is that he actually, he actually kind of defines, you know, for, for himself, what this movie's about. And so do you want me to read that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So he writes, freaks are not free. The freaks are not the freaks we think they are. We are much more connected to the most outrageous behavior than we know or admit. Um, Now, so now, you know, I mean, you know, obviously he's not referring to homosexuals as freaks. I mean, I know that, you know, we're in the super PC culture, but outside of the norm. (laughs) I mean, I think we're just talking about outside of the norm. and you know, and, and you know, he's not just as homosexual. He, you know, he's a he's a guy who's married to a wife who has, uh, you know, a, a pre-op uh, transgender, you know, b- uh, boyfriend who he's also married to, uh, you, you know. And so, so there's a you know a lot of different stuff that's, uh, you know, um, you know, c- going into this character of Sonny, uh, who was a real guy and who died only right. ten years ago, and he was actually free, uh, I believe, when he, when he died. There, there are a few documentaries uh, about him out there. Um, that are probably worth checking out. Um, so, 
Yeah, and actually, it's it's interesting because the kind of plot of the movie one of the one of the plot points near the end is him leaving money that he would get from life insurance mm-hmm. to this person so they could get so they could get the surgery. And of course, that didn't happen because he didn't die; he survives. But actually, I found that he took the money that he got from the making of this film to enable to get this to get this surgery so kind of full circle this movie made <laughs> that dream possible and that uh-huh. dream come true which is kind of cool um so the other thing i wanted to bring up is i feel like lumetta is great with the crowd shots because it would yeah. have been easy for him to just start with everyone there all the people there but you as the street scenes go on and on you can see the crowd get bigger and bigger and louder and louder and see the police kind of unable to deal with what's going on and i thought that was really subtly done because i think most directors would have just had like yeah just get a bunch of extras we'll have them in every scene go crazy uh so uh, ironically enough i was reading reading again and making movies about you know, another anecdote you know for this uh so apparently he got on a megaphone and talked to all the extras for like an not individually but talked to the right. extras for like an over an hour defining you know who like their different groups and their different subsets and then apparently at one point it just became a force of its own and people were just free people from the neighborhoods were just coming in and and you know surrounding the whole thing and just behaving in exactly the way you would expect them to um and <laughs> And so right. like, like, yeah, it really add really adds to the film. Yeah. And there's like one more shot that I noticed that I think a lot of directors would have made might have gotten rid of this scene and we'll get into it in the writing a little bit too. But a lot of this movie was ad libbed. Like they, they kind of created a script based on, on these kind of interactions that were created by the actors and not so much the standard script, but there's a, there's a scene where, Al Pacino is kind of spinning his rifle, like showing off his training Uh and teaching one of the bank tellers because it accomplishes so much. One, it accomplishes that they've been telling the truth, that they're veterans, because that could have been something that they just said. Uh, So it kind of tells us, okay, that's true. And also shows that these people all locked in this building are bonding with one another. And he trusts her enough, like, here's this loaded weapon, and I'm going to teach you how to twirl it like I was taught, you know, in the armed forces, and I'm going to make sure you do this correctly. And I thought that was, like, a really sweet, really great moment that a lot of directors would have just – that would have hit the cutting room floor. Yeah, and so, again, I think that ties back to our theme as well and that we're, you know, we're dealing not just with Sonny's perspective, uh, you know, as – because, you know what – when out outside of things, when you hear that a guy pulls a gun in a bank robbery, you have, you have certain judgments that you make on that person. Right. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not, you know, condoning anything like this. It's just interesting that we find out all this backstory and it's all stuff that kind of makes us want to root for Sonny and, and that the bank tellers, you know, kind of behave in the same way. Mm-hmm. And they have their, their own perspective, which is, which is, Oh, we, you know, we make less than a hundred dollars a week or whatever. Why, you know, why should we care right. you know, about all this? Uh, yeah, let's go to Algeria. Right. Um, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I just, I just feel like this movie is expertly directed. I think you really hit it on the head when it feels like Sidney Lumet isn't trying very hard. Like it, it feels like it's, it just seamless and flows, but there's a lot of things he's doing here that are kind of below the surface. And I just think mm-hmm. it's tremendously directed. So it makes me want to watch more Sidney Lumet movies. And now I have two more to watch. You you should. I've I've seen twenty one Sydney Lumet movies apparently according to Letterboxd, and I've only regretted seeing probably about two or three of them. That's so, a pretty I mean, good ratio. Yeah. I'll take nineteen out of twenty one. <laughs> I'll take that for sure. Uh, so let's jump into the acting. So of course we have Al Pacino uh, in the main role here, and I this might be my favorite Al Pacino performance 
after seeing this. And I'm I didn't, surprised to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised to think that. Uh, I didn't think. I, I mean, obviously, it it's it's this and Dick Tracy, right? Like these are the two. No, it's <laughs> it's this and Godfather. Obviously, I mean, but this Wait, was which Godfather though? Which Godfather? That's, well, that's... I mean, I think. It's hard to separate them because that the arc of the character goes over both films, but I think his performance is more impressive in the second film. But I agree. I agree. Um, but I, it's such a different role than I've seen him in. Like he's he tends to play like confident, uh, bordering on cocky or arrogant, and uh-huh. in this, like he's so. He's so real. He's so down to earth in this. And even though some crazy things are happening, you never lose sight of who Sonny is. And I think a lot of that is due to his performance. I was really impressed here. Like we don't get the we don't get the typical Al Pacino intensity yeah. like, screaming matches. You don't get like, they pull me back in. Like you never get we, that moment. When we yeah. see that, it's him reacting in a defensive manner towards like his wife or or his mother or something like that. It's not the same kind of you know devil's advocate kind of kind of thing that was you know that comes on. Which you know I like a certain level. Uh, <laughs> right. Sure. But I agree. It's really interesting seeing him play kind of some someone who is who is kind of passive and kind of, and can't really, uh, you know, has to really defend themselves uh, in, in this very interesting way throughout all the, you know, all the circumstances that are going, that are going on. Yeah. And I think it's one of the few Pacino performances that there's not a moment for me where I'm like, Oh, that's Pacino. Like he completely Uh folds himself into this character and he is Sonny. You know, and that's and that's coming from someone, you know, many years removed from the release of this movie. Obviously, I mean, this movie was released four years before I was born. But like, so you have all this in your head about who Al Pacino is and who he is as a movie star and who he is now. And for him to kind of disappear into this role is almost more impressive now than it would have been in 1975 when he was still really early in his career. He's had a really, really interesting career when you think about it, because if you look back at his the early part of of his career, you know, he had... You know, he was, he was like like kind of a New York theater actor guy, and then he had like like one really small bit part in in some movie. Then he had a really good role in a movie called um, The Panic in Needle Park, and and people took notice of him for that. Um, but you know, you can really understand why it was seen as such a huge risk um, to put him in in The Godfather, and then obviously oh, yeah. that paid off and everything. Um, but when you think about it, this is like. This is like what the third uh, diff- third director film director that he's worked with at, right. at this point. Um, so you know it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and the other thing I want to mention, we kind of talked about this offline a little bit, but you know every time I see a movie where a you know male star is playing gay, like I remember, uh, mm-hmm. especially when you know you have uh, Jake Gyllenhaal playing gay, for instance, you. Everyone talks about how brave it is. What a brave decision. I, uh, I think Greg Kinnear is – it should be called the Greg Kinnear distinction of <laughs> – <laughs> But like you look at this and like one, it's this huge twist that I was definitely not – not I did not see coming You know, because I think they hide it very well. They just kind of talk about, you know, go find his wife, go find, you know, this person. And all of a sudden this man shows up. And for someone of Pacino's stature at this point in his career where not only was he a star after Godfather, but a star on the rise, Mm -hmm. you know, like he was just starting his career. Like and you you don't see that nowadays so much where someone is willing to take that kind of risk. So it was really refreshing and really kind of progressive, especially for a film from 1975 to have this plot line in there. 
And that's the thing is that he just kind he doesn't come off like he's part of that. I think I think right. the bigger reason why you wouldn't want to portray him as maybe a feminine or overt gay man, if we're just going to like you know, right. let's, just, let's just deal with this head on. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, the real reason is that then he would feel like he belongs to a community of some sort, and he wouldn't be this kind of crazy individual. Uh, you know, who who can who can throw money at crowds and have people start rooting for him and all that. He kind of seems like he comes from nowhere, you know, in a way. Uh, and and so I think that that that's the real reason why you wouldn't want to have his character be, you know, you know, be um, more uh, more of a, a typical gay character. Right. And I think it was uh, probably much more rare to see a non-typical gay character mm-hmm. in film in 1975. So that was – it did feel in that way very modern, which was really cool to see. He, play, he plays a very different uh, uh, gay character in uh, Angels in America, the yeah. HBO miniseries. Where, where he's, I don't know. If, have you seen that? I have. I have seen that. Oh, one, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a very different performance. That yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So we also, of course, have um, Charles Durning, who plays Moretti, who plays kind of the cop who's, you know, trying to talk him off the ledge uh, in this scene, who I was really impressed by. He's another one of those actors who's kind of that guy. Like, he's been in so many things that it's hard to even place, like, what you know him from. But I really mm-hmm. liked his performance here. I like that a lot of times you'll have these movies with hostage negotiators and they're they're calm the whole way through and there's no humanity in their performance. But I really enjoyed Charles Durning here. They don't they don't go into like huge details about about like like uh, like it, a lot of times in movies like this, it, you know, when they're made today, you, you always get the oh, the SWAT people are coming in and they're you know, they don't like the FBI people. Uh, right. And, <laughs> or they don't like the NYPD here. And so and we get that like bit of, you know, cop politics uh, and the movie's not concerned with that. The movie's just just gonna, and so that stuff happens off screen. And I like seeing Durning just reacting to it as opposed to, you know, you know, dealing with it head on and making that the focus of the movie, uh, you know, which would have been a, been a bad decision. And so he does actually a whole lot with a character that probably would have, you know, could have drifted in the background really easily. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that the character is written in such a way and the situation is written in such a way that he is not in control of the situation. Like from the very beginning, even though he's technically in charge, like things keep happening without his knowledge. Like, you know, the the cops kind of coming around the back and trying to go through the roof and he looks genuinely upset by this. And he's not the cool, collected police chief that we're used to seeing in movies. Mm-hmm. And he and he knows that any minute this could this could I mean, because everything he's doing is, yeah, like I think we know his motivation is the people inside. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? As much as he pretends to, to care about Sonny and all that. I think some of that's genuine, but I think more of it more so it's about the people inside. And you see that when the when the head bank teller uh, is outside and he's like, just she's out. Let's let's let, let her come out. You know what I mean? Right. You get that real intense close up. I think it's the, mo- the biggest close up he, he has in the whole movie. Um, you know, you really see that that's what his motivation is. Right. And you mentioned, I hope I don't horribly mispronounce his name, John Cazale, um, who uh, who, of course, uh, plays plays Sal. But I was looking at his IMDb and, of course, my my first recognition from him as soon as he shows up on screen is from The Godfather because we mm-hmm. have, you know, our brothers back together again. <laughs> we have Fredo back on screen. But he barely did anything in his in his career. Mm-hmm. And, of course, his career was cut short because – you know, strangely enough, there's all these scenes about, quote unquote, getting the cancer. And he actually did die of cancer, mm-hmm. like, I think, three years after this movie or three or four years after because he was in The Deer yeah, Hunter he, after that. He, he died right after filming his role in, in The Deer Hunter. So right. in 1978. 
Yeah. Uh, and he was actually Mar married to Meryl Streep. And, you know, so it's really, it, it's an incredibly sad uh, story when you think about it. And then, you know, at the same time, he has this distinction of having appeared in, in not just six, uh, you know, actually physically appearing in six movies that were nominated for Best Picture, but also uh, appearing in archival footage um, right. in The Godfather Part Three, and having that be nominated for Best Picture. So he technically has seven. That's and, crazy. And, and, and again, <laughs> just quite just a run. Like Pacino, just like Pacino, this is like the second film director that you know Cazale had worked with. And he's giving this, you know, amazing, you know, performance that's 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 subtle uh, yet layered, and, and, and you know, we, we we definitely get the sense from Sal that you know the, that the only thing that's that's motivating him is that he doesn't want to go back to prison. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, of course, he offers some kind of moments of humor, like we talked about the the Wyoming line. But there's also yeah. a really interesting character moment of him not wanting to be associated with kind of the freaks, you know, like yeah. on the news <laughs> being talked about, like two homosexuals are robbing the bank. And he's not upset about, you know, uh, maybe dying or being known as a bank robber. But the idea of him being associated with that group is just so kind of heinous to him. And it's a really interesting character moment. It's very interesting. I think that ties back to perspective as well, because, you know, yeah. that's the kind of thing that happens today is that we have, you know, these national tragedies and everything. And we all just assume that the perpetrators are part of of this other thing. Right. And it's not it's not always true. And, yeah. you know, you, you know, so, yeah, so interesting observation. Yeah. And then we have, of course, uh, Chris Sarandon in his feature film debut, uh, we figured out, uh, playing, you know, Pacino's lover in this film. And we were talking as I was watching the movie and you were <laughs> like, I don't want to spoil anything. Wait till you get to the phone call. And of course, I'm sure we'll talk about that in favorite scenes. But Chris Sarandon's performance in that moment is pretty fantastic. Like I was really worried when he first shows up and he's like, you know, drugged up from Bellevue. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to be so stereotypical and so ridiculous. But that scene becomes so human. And a lot of it is because of Chris Sarandon's performance, which is so impressive in a first film. Yeah, no, I think I think he's really good. I, I'm trying to think like I know he was in Child's Play and, a, and a Princess few Bride, things, man. Uh, Princess Bride. That's the first uh, thing Humperdinck, that comes to mind. Humperdinck. Yeah. You know, I, I hope you'll consider me or whatever yes. before you kill yourself. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this cast, I mean, and there's also, you know, like Lance Hendrickson has a small part here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a really star studded cast, but it's really kind of amazingly self-contained. Like it never feels like even for Pacino, it doesn't feel like a quote unquote star vehicle. It just feels like a self-contained story that is well told. And, and you know, for a lot of for a lot of this cast members, these are this is very very early in their career, and, and yeah. so Henriksen, uh, Chris Sarandon, John Cazale, Al Pacino, and Carol Kane. Oh yeah, I the mean, squirrel, unbelievably. Yes. <laughs> like I just couldn't. I I completely forgotten that she was in this. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, I had that moment because I, you know, it, it's always a shame when you there's these actors with these huge, uh, these huge filmographies and you're like, oh, I think of this. And when I see Carol Kane, the first thing that comes to mind is Scrooged of all things. So like, uh -huh. I see her too, and I hear that too. voice. She's great. Yeah. She's great and, in that movie. Like, <laughs> and, you know, I, I just think the interactions between her and Pacino in the very beginning of the film are pretty fantastic. And mm -hmm. she has this great scene where her husband calls and it says so much about, about Sonny that he gives her the phone. Like, okay, go ahead, go ahead, talk to your husband. It's fine. <laughs> or like any other movie with a bank robber, like it's, you're just going to hang up. Like you're just going to move yeah, on. Yeah. And I love that they have that mode. Like, Oh, he wants to know when you'll be done. <laughs> like, 
as if he's going to the store and like well, I'll be home in an hour, sweetie. Even just the, like the, the whole bathroom thing, like it's like it's incredible. Yeah, like there's just no there, he doesn't. This character doesn't have the ability to to put other people through harm, you know, r- really. And yet, right. and yet, the, we get these we we get this very interesting dichotomy with both of his lovers. That that his the first time we see his wife, you know, his actual you know straight married wife. Um, she is uh, saying, oh, you know, he, he's, he's horrible. He beats me. And, and, you know, but he never could have done this. It, it wasn't him. <laughs> if it was his body, it wasn't his mind. Uh, and then we get a very similar thing with uh, Chris Sarandon, uh, you know, as Leon um, is, is, you know, he, you know, he's crazy. I, I don't want to be around him. He, you know, he hits me and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, uh, and yet, yet he has this, this really impassioned, uh, you know, conversation with him and everything. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> so let's move on to the screenplay. So as I was watching this movie, like within the first 10 minutes, I got really worried because I knew this was a two hour long movie and everything goes to shit so quickly in this movie that it feels like it's something that should be happening like 45 minutes to an hour in. And then we kind of ramp up the ending of the film. But everything goes wrong at the very beginning. I mean, you have, you know, one of the members of their crew going like, nope, can't do this. And he leaves. You have Pacino struggling to get his rifle out of out of like the flower box that he's hit it in. Like nothing is going right in this in this Mm -hmm. moment. So it feels like a middle of the movie moment. But it happens, you know, in the first 10 minutes. So I was sure, like, this is going to be a really imbalanced script. It's going to feel long. It's going to feel like, oh, my God, this movie's never going to end. But it never does. It It's really excellently plotted. And that's even more impressive when you think about how much of this movie was ad-libbed by the actors. Well, okay. So, I mean, it has a reputation for that. But I do want to I, – I think I think Frank Pearson deserves some credit. I think Frank okay. Pearson did, a, did an amazing job in the script. Uh, and he, he's the one who won the Academy Award for it. Yep. And, you know, he, uh, he only died just recently. And, you know, he was a really incredible writer. Um, the thing that sticks out to me from a script level is everyone everyone assumes that that when Pacino screamed – Attica, Attica, that, that maybe that was, that was improvised, but he mentions Attica, um, earlier. And I, so now yeah. Attica, uh, I was sort of aware in the back of my mind of what it was, but I, I looked it up just, you know, to refresh my memory. Um, so it was a, it was a police riot that happened like right around the same time as this, um, bank robbery, uh, you know, in like in 1972. Um, and it, what it was is that it was a, um, a riot that basically sparked a prisoner's rights movement. And so, you know, for many people, again, like tying back to perspective, if you're looking at, at the Attica situation and you're seeing it from the prisoner's perspective, you're thinking, wow, isn't that wonderful? They're, those people are standing up for their rights and they should be treated better, you know, by law enforcement uh, officials. And then if you're looking at it from the other perspective, from like, I guess, the Nixonian you know, perspective of the early seventies, you're saying, you know, law and order, you know, the, like how are you in there? Like, like we can't let this all, you know, can't let these ruffians, you know, uh, you know, do all this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, that's a really interesting touch that he puts mm-hmm. in there that doesn't get underlined in a very, in a, in a big way. It's just kind of, you know, uh, again, tying back to this idea of, of all this being true. Um, it, it, you know, the fact that it's a, uh, you know, a thing that people would have been thinking about, you know, in 1972, uh, you know, right at this time, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of kind of disputing stories about how much, um, how much of this film was 
you know, ad-libbed and how much was written. It feels like a lot of it was ad-libbed, but then they wrote the script around those sequences. So it makes you wonder if the Attica Attica thing was was Pacino's idea and then they kind of went back and kind of plugged it into the script. And if that's the case, they did it expertly because it doesn't feel forced. Like I, it, I think some of the other uh, stuff that goes on in the street, is, you know, it's probably was, you know, there was some slight ad libbing and everything. Uh, but I believe the Attica Attica thing must have been in there because I, I, you know, I don't see it being introduced in this way and then being brought up again. Uh, it's really amazing. Uh, and I, and I, be, uh, it, you know, it's funny. You, you could imagine that maybe even the crowd, uh, you know, exactly knew what, what Pacino was talking about. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I also think this, this script does a great job of balancing this line between like seriousness and a little bit of weird humor going on. Like there's a really mm-hmm. serious line where he talks about, you know, I hope the guy that kills me hates me instead of the guy who's just doing his job, you know, which is a really kind of poignant moment in the script. But then you have like near the end of the film, it, it really struck me as they're, you know, driving to the plane uh, you know, he's got all these people in the car. There's guns. There's police following him. And he keeps saying, oh, I hope they have food on the plane. Like, I got to uh-huh. make sure. And it's such a weird moment. But something that if you think you're going to get, 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 get away, get away with. That's something that you're thinking, oh, I hope I can eat on the way to Algeria or wherever it is I'm going. And it's such a weird mix. But all of it really works. Yeah, it's so interesting because, like, they tell them that there's going to be hamburgers on the plane. <laughs> and, like, right off the bat, I'm thinking, hamburgers? I mean, that's not, like, a typical plane thing. Like, right. What, you got a grill in there? Or, like, <laughs> how could you be really making hamburgers on the plane? Um, you know, what? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess they could have had fast food, you know, bring it in or whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, I would, I would, you would think that in, in most people, and, and again, with, um, with Sal being told to keep the gun up. You know what I mean? Like he's being told to keep it up because they're moving. The car's moving. And like, like, you just like, and so it's just so, it's so, oh man. And so you look at this thing and it's like these two people are having guns and they're obviously dangerous, um, you know, and yet at the same time, the fact that they, they're, you know, these lapses in logic and everything just makes you, you know, you know, really feel for them. And and it's sort of a bizarre kind of night nightingale, you know, syndrome. Uh, going on uh, or not Nightingale what Stockholm Stockholm yeah and it really fits with kind of how they've set up these guys from the very beginning they're not professionals they don't know what they're doing so it makes sense that Sal would actually kind of do what the cop says in this situation like okay put my gun up I don't know I don't know this you know maybe (laughs) I've never fired a gun in a in, in a car full of this many people maybe you know maybe he's right and it really kind of sets him up for his for his death in the film, but it's not in another movie. It would feel like, Oh, why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. But you have to remember this is a guy that doesn't know Wyoming is a state and not another country. Mm -hmm. So I think all that is set up really well. And that's another funny moment that I'm glad they kept in there. And it could have easily been something that felt too silly, but it really felt right for these characters. And I love that it's brought up again in the, in the phone call later in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, like so, so going back to the phone call. I don't, I don't, are we in the favorite scenes part? Oh, yet, we still have to we... do. Uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Hold on. Okay. Uh, so production value. Kind of all I really wanted to talk about is how well Lumet shoots the city. Like, there's never a moment where it it feels it feels staged, even though it clearly is. Like, there's basically only like three or four locations in this film, and one of those is that street location. Mm-hmm. But it, And some of it may be because, like you said, people just started showing up, that it feels very real and feels like it's set in that moment in time and in that place in the city. 
like they're going for emotional truth and they, they, you know, they, they, they really, really hit it in a, in a big way. Uh, and so you, you just wonder if it, yeah, I, I think, I think Lumet was just one of these guys who, who was very process oriented as opposed to results oriented. Right. Um, and he just kind of did his thing, you know, for decades and every now and then, you know, situations would line up in a way that where everything would just, would, would fall into place and you'd get this thing like this, a great script, you know, with, with great actors who weren't, um, you know, needy or anything. Uh, and you, you're, you end up with this, with this wonderful product. Uh, and, and so you're talking about production value. Uh, would you be shocked to, to learn that it was all shot with fluorescence and, and natural light? Wow. <laughs> like, like they literally, if they needed fill light, they brought in fluorescent light to. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, I think the thing that's most impressive is it, and this is a really hard balance, but it feels like a time capsule. Like it feels like it's set in that time, but it never comes off silly. And a lot of times if you're like, oh, that movie is so uh-huh. 70s or so 60s, that's not really a compliment. But in this case, it really kind of toes that line really well. I think a big part of it is that it, does, it, it never it doesn't feel politically motivated. It doesn't feel, uh, you know, it doesn't feel concerned for all that. Like I said, it, right. we're getting sort of a very uh you know setback a moral viewpoint of the yeah situation. like you said there's <laughs> not like there's not necessarily a hero in this story it's not mm-hmm. as if like you're all in for pacino and all the cops are bad like it is a very balanced story where you can see as we keep talking about everyone's perspective in the film even the ending there's no sort of release there's no sort right. of you know summation there we we don't get Moretti coming in saying man you know this world it's it's fucked up yeah uh, and, and you know we don't get any sort of like we don't uh, have the seven ending or anything yeah. uh you know i love i, I love seven i'm just you yeah. know, a very right choice for that movie uh but it, totally. it's very very interesting that lumet you know and, and frank pearson didn't choose to do anything like that uh <laughs> yeah i kind of respect that i think in a lot of ways i think some a lot of viewers kind of expect a a little bit of a summation like okay what am I supposed to take away from this movie? Like guide me. You're the director. And I love that. He just doesn't do that. Like, mm-hmm. Nope. Just telling this crazy story that really did actually happen. And you deal with it audience, you know, and I, I kind of dig that. And it's interesting. Cause that's not, you know, it's not like he approached every film that way. I mean, network is right. the opposite. Network is, is a, is a very biting piece of satire. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it has a very, it has, it has a very clear, uh, you know, viewpoint on, you know, on the situations that, you know, that are going on in that movie, both from a script level and from a directing level. Uh, so, you know, it's not like, it's not like he was just like, I'm just going to be, you know, I think directors today, they, 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 they calling try to card. find themselves yeah. very early on in their career and just say, well, this is the way I'm going to be. And, you know, because I want to be an auteur and all that. And I don't think Sidney Lumet was concerned about all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, the only other Lumet movie I've seen, 12 Angry Men, granted, it's, mm-hmm. it's based on yeah. a play, but it definitely has a point of view. Exactly. Like, it has a yeah. hero in the story, for sure. All right, uh, so you were all raring to go on one of your favorite scenes, so go ahead. Well, the the, the phone call scene, it has to be the phone call scene. I oh, think it's yeah. amazing. I think it's some of the, you know, best acting uh, Pacino ever did. I don't know, Leon, you know, I'm dying here. I'm dying. Don't you ever listen to yourself when you say that? I, you're dying. Uh, did, did, you, did you ever listen to yourself? What are you talking about? I mean, what, what, what do you mean? What am I talking about? You, you're dying. Uh, uh, do you know that you say that to me every day of your life? Oh. I'm dying. Well, you're not dying. You're killing the people around you is what you're doing. Oh, come on. Leon, don't give me that shit. You know, I don't need that deep shit now. Well, I don't think you, you realize what it means, Sonny. You know, the things you do. Yeah. I know what I do. I mean, you, you, you stick a gun to somebody's head. 
Yeah, well, I don't know what I'm doing, yeah, so I'm yeah, fine with that. Yeah, well, obviously you don't. Go to sleep, Leon, so it won't hurt when I pull the trigger. For, for, why, what do you think I've been doing in the hospital? I mean, I... I, I, I take a handful of pills to get away from you, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then, now I'm talking to you on the phone again, right? I'm, I, I'm, I got no job. I don't have friends. I can't live. I, I have to live with people. <sighs> this death business, I'm sorry. I don't know, Leon, you know, I don't know what I'm, I'm getting here with that shit. You know, what am I supposed to say to that shit? This is going on, and you're giving me that shit. I'm, so, I'm sorry. You know what's happening with me, you know that. You know the pressures I've been having. I mean, I got all these pressures, and you know about it. You're in that hospital there with all them tubes coming out, and you want that fucking operation, right? You're giving me that shit. Everybody's giving me shit. Everybody needs money, you know what I mean? So, you needed money, I got your money. That's it. Yeah. Well, I didn't ask you to go and rob a bank. No, I know you didn't ask me. I know you didn't ask me. Look, I'm not putting this on anybody, you know? Nothing on nobody. I did this on my own, you see? All on my own, I did it. But I just want you to know something. I want you to know that I'm gonna, I'm getting out of here. I'm, t I'm getting a plane out of here. And I just wanted you to know it, that's all. And I wanted you to come down. And uh, I wanted to just say goodbye to you here. Or if you wanted to, you can come with me. Uh, and, you know, yeah. it is so different for this kind of scene. Um, and so I, I had read an anecdote in making movies many years ago and I had, couldn't remember. And I was really struggling to try and find the passage and I did find it. Uh, and I'm not going to read it, but I'm just going to tell the story. Um, so they, the, the close up on Pacino, they, uh, with both phone calls, with, with phone calls to, uh, to, to, to his wife, Leon, Leon and to his wife, uh, and to his other wife, um, you know, they were shot in one long 15-minute uninterrupted take, uh, even though they knew it was going to be broken up in editing uh, later. Uh, and so, you know, maybe this, th that sounds like no big deal, but uh, film magazines at the time could only hold about 11 minutes of footage. And mm -hmm. so uh, to reload the film camera, it would take about two or three minutes uh, of downtime uh, you know, to do that. And Lumette was thinking, well, if I do that, Pacino's going to, you know, he's just going to, you know, lose that, uh, you know, that, that, that exhaustion, he's going to be relieved in some way. And I don't want that. I want to keep going. Right. Um, and so what they literally did is they had two cameras. And so when they got to like the, you know, the, the eight minute mark on the first camera, they would have the other camera loaded and ready to go. Hmm. And it would be behind a, like a, a, uh, 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 some masking of some sort so that Pacino couldn't, you know, so they would muffle the sound of loading the camera. Uh, and, and so that's how they were able to, you know, have this uninterrupted amount of, uh, of acting from Pacino. And it's interesting because we were so, you know, damn impressed by uh, one shot sequences today. <laughs> and yet we look at this thing and Lumet is doing it not for a technical reason, not to show off, but for, you for know, an for emotional reason, yeah, yeah, for a performance reason. And it's great. And it's amazing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's more impressive than anything in Birdman. Uh, sorry. But no, <laughs> I, I mean, I would agree with that. I feel, I feel like this scene is so impactful for a couple reasons. One, because we have, two phone calls in this and you see the real difference between these relationships. And I love that Pacino kind of repeats this line. Like I'm dying here. I'm dying here uh -huh. to both of them. And I love the different reactions from both of them, which tells you a lot about how their relationships went and how it ended. And I also think in that phone call with Leon, with Chris Sarandon's character without 
laying everything out, without going into the history of their relationship in this phone call, you get their interaction in this, you know, however long the scene is, you get that it's like the the relationship in a microcosm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that one phone call, which is so impressive and such an impressive job, both from Pacino and Sarandon. And I love how it starts kind of awkwardly. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a telephone call in a movie where like you mm-hmm. just jump into things like let's, we got to hit these major points. So we got to get to it. So there's this awkwardness because they haven't seen each other for so long. Because yeah. because he's been in the hospital and I and I love that it kind of builds because you told me like it's all about this phone call. I was like okay. In the first couple minutes, I'm like okay, this is different. <laughs> this is odd. But then it builds and builds and builds. And really, you could just watch this scene as a a tiny little short film, yeah. and it's really emotionally affecting. I, I love that uh, you know, Leon uh, starts uh, off by saying how horrible the hospital is and how they're poking him, prodding him the minute he gets there and, and he doesn't like it. Uh, and then at the very end of the phone call, he, he says, well, I think I'm going to go back to the hospital. They really care about me there. They want me to get back. It's, again, these weird dichotomies. And, and, and it's so so interesting because Sonny's doing it all for him. And it's just... And, you know, it's emotionally devastating and everything yeah. just to think that it doesn't mean anything, um, you know, and so. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. The other scene I really like is the uh, the kind of bullhorn yelling scene when after he's had to fire the shot and he comes out all pissed off mm-hmm. at the cop. And there it's interesting. They they escalate each other while at the same time trying desperately to calm one another down. What the fuck is the matter with you? What? What are you firing a shot there for? What are you doing? We got 250 cops here. Fuck for you. What are you doing back there? Who's throwing in there? What, what the hell's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? They were trying to get in there, right? Who? Come on, don't give me that shit. You know who. What the fuck is going on here? You're full of shit. Go around and find out what's going on back there. Honest yeah. to God, I don't even know what the Bullshit. fuck is going on here. Our communications aren't set up yet. I just heard somebody back there. To talk to God me. damn it. Get somebody to talk to me. I'm not talking to you anymore. Uh, let me talk to you. Let yeah, me talk you tell me one right, thing now, that you're doing. Hold on a second. What were they doing back there? I don't know what the fuck they were doing Yeah, you don't there. know. You're full That's of shit. That's another force back there. A tactical force. A tactical they like force. They like to right. jump on ropes. They like to climb into a window. They like it. Right. Without they your like orders, right? Trigger, yes. Without your orders. Uh, no. Yes. Without my orders. Yes. yes. How do I know you're not going to come through the roof? Because I'm telling you that we're not. Yeah, you're telling me a lot of things, but you're not doing them. Oh, goddamn what I told you. That we have what were they doing thing? back there? That's I what I know what they were doing back there. You can't answer me, right? You can't answer me. Yes, I can answer you. So we you have no communication shut up there. No communications. Look, we got I got a guy in there. I got a guy in there who's going to kill somebody. That's your responsibility, you understand? Not mine. That's your Now, wait a minute. Hold a second. Let's. We got everything you wanted. We can't get a helicopter in here, but we got a bus coming. We got a jet coming into Kennedy. Now we got a we got a hold of your wife. Your wife is coming. Where you coming? I've been dealing right. I'm right going? here. I'm right here. All right. I thought we were going to talk. I thought so too, but we're not talking. We're I'm talking to get now. The back right. door. That's what we're doing. We reached your wife. She'll be here in about a half hour. And mm-hmm. I love that it's another moment of Pacino where he's like not in control. He doesn't know what he's doing and he's not sure who to trust. And that all comes across in these kind of subtle changes of tone and changes in his voice where you can you can see that he's yelling, but he looks scared. He looks really worried. Like he's trying to come off angry, but he's terrified in this moment because he's had to fire his weapon and he w- probably wasn't, you know, he's hoping that wasn't going to have to happen. You know, it's just it's just so interesting because every every time I watch this movie – no matter how many times I've seen it, I always think in the first 15 minutes 
that okay they're going to get away i mean this is so easy like they just kind of right. you know run out to the car and they're they're done um <laughs> and then i always think that they're going to get uh you know uh are we in spoiler territory yet? yeah you I spoil mean, everything yeah okay yeah uh, i always think they're going to get on the plane they're going to go to algeria <laughs> right it does really feel like that and i think some of it is because of like what we kind of talked about where the conversation changes to not being about the robbery but about mm-hmm. these inane details so you're like oh we're on our way to the plane. The plane yeah, is there. Yeah. It's not like they took him to some abandoned place and tricked him. They took him to the airport and the plane is waiting to be loaded up. And, and it's interesting because like the, the not uh, Moretti, but the other cop who has taken over uh, the operation at that point, he's, he has some very interesting wordplay in that he says, he says, I don't want there to be any, uh, you know, uh, uh, conflict on en route. You know what right. I mean? And so what he means is, you know, it's all going to happen at the airport. But when you're first watching it, you're, you know, you're thinking, oh, they're going to, they're just, they're calling it off. They're right. saying, let's go. Yeah. You know? Let so, them go. Let's just keep these people safe. Yeah, absolutely. And he calls the bluff on the, on the, uh, the hip, uh, uh, um, um, you know, uh, driver, uh, who they're oh. trying to like kind of, which I, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that both, that the plan was that they would prepare both the officer and the driver. Right. You know, depending on who he would go with. Yeah. And in terms of smaller moments in the film, I also really like the scene where he's kind of dictating his will to be written Mm -hmm. down. Like that easily could have been a really boring, really bland scene, but Pacino's performance, like every word he says in here is just kind of dripping with emotion and it's for a reason. It's not just like my last will and Testament. It's like everything he's laying out here is for people he cares about. And you get that, from his performance here. And it, it could have been a throwaway scene. And because of, because of Pacino, it's not. I mean, on some level, I guess he knows he's not going to get away. Cause and it's so interesting that he's, he, he's dictating terms for his insurance policy, not for, uh, you know, any of the money that, that they've stolen right. or anything like that. Like he knows none of that's going to, you know, pan out um, and on some level. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that is a really interesting scene. Yeah. The other thing I think I wanted to mention when we were going about going on about writing, but didn't you had mentioned about this idea that there are no heroes and there are no villains really in this story. And the one person up into a point you could see as a villain is kind of the bank manager, right? You're always kind of worried about Uh him. He's a bigger guy, you know, he's threatening. And I love that, you know, in the script, they, they kind of tear him down and make him weak by, you know, he has diabetes and he almost dies and his life is saved by Pacino's character. And then after that, he decides to stay where he, he could have, he could have left if he wanted to. Uh-huh. And, Which is, and you get, you get the very same thing with that head, you know, bank teller, uh, you know, when, well, they're my girls. Like, uh, you know, right. I mean, they don't sense any, I think the way you get from that is that they don't sense you know, any real threat from these right. guys. Well, I mean, you and... get, you get the character of Maria, like telling, uh, telling Sal, like, you know, it's going to be okay on your first flight, Yeah, which is such an odd little She's... moment, but really makes sense. <laughs> She's it's so interesting. She's so concerned about him and everything, even though she's leaving. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he, and he, he probably feels like he looks weak in front of the police officers right. uh, and all that. Uh, so, <laughs> So again, perspective, it's like, you know, you spend 12 hours with someone, you know, you, you, you see them differently than if you just hear about them on the news, pulling a gun in a bank. Uh, And so like, there isn't a, there isn't a, a, a judgment being made or anything like that. But there is, there is, you know, an observation happening. All right. Um, so we've touched on a lot about the theme. And I think the scene that really hits home for perspective, I think you're right, is that phone call. Like, I think we have a certain image in our head of 
who our main character is. Like, I think up until that moment, at least for me, I saw him as the good guy, the guy we're rooting for. And he's doing something really kind for this person in his life. But then you get all this background on their relationship and kind of how Leon sees things as opposed to how Sonny sees things. Uh-huh. It, it, is, it is, again, interesting. We see that with both their, you know, of, of his lovers uh, yeah. and everything, you know, so it is, uh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and even the scene where they're, you, you mentioned where they're first interviewing his his straight female wife, where <laughs> she she starts talking about, like, you know, there's a gun in the car and how dangerous he is and I don't know him anymore, you know, and it's like, whoa, that is not the character I feel like I was introduced to. So it's really, it's really cool to kind of get all this background and how things really can change when you get a different perspective on a person we, we we hear so much from his loved ones about you know how much of a fuck up he is or how much or even how violent and dangerous he is and yet we don't see anything like that when he's when he's really pressed uh you know the most violent thing he does is shooting out that window yeah right? you know that's it uh and so it's it's such a, a very interesting dichotomy in this character that's being presented uh who i I like I don't I don't know what to make of it. It, it it's hard to believe that I mean we have two different people who we can assume don't know each other uh saying that he's violent, you know, in right. private. And so I guess we have to assume that he is uh you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's interesting cuz we only like you know, granted they were locked in this bank for 12 to 14 hours, but that's just 12 to 14 hours of this person's life. Mm-hmm. And it just goes to show you, like, no matter how close you feel you are to somebody in that period of time, you don't know what their background is. You don't know where they come from. You don't know how they interact with different people. And you need that perspective of kind of outside individuals. And you don't know that about, you know, we don't know that about the uh, cops outside. Yeah. Um, and, and we see that very early on with uh, the uh, the guard. Uh, who, you know, who is like the elderly uh, black guard who is let go and is immediately taken down like he's a criminal. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Again, perspective, correct? Yeah, absolutely. All right. uh, So the last thing we need to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with. And I know uh, you don't watch trailers, so I wasn't going to make you do this, but there's a movie uh, called War Dogs coming out uh, starring Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. Um, kind of, it says based on the true story of these two young men who won a $300 million contract from the Pentagon to arm America's allies in Afghanistan. Um, and I saw the trailer and I cracked up through the whole thing. I I actually really like Miles Teller. He's one of my favorite young actors. I know he is like either loved or hated depending on the circles you run in. The only thing that really worries me is that it's directed by Todd Phillips, uh, who directed, of course, the hangover series. And that's kind of it. So it's like, it feels like one of these comedies that, um, has an intelligent base, but when you look at the director involved, it makes me kind of worry. So what do you think about this movie coming up? Is it something you'd be interested in seeing? You know, I actually kind of want to see it just on general buzz. Um, you know, obviously I haven't looked at the trailer. I know, some are they arms dealers or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it sounds interesting. It's a good cast. I like Todd Phillips. I never saw the Hangover Part Two or the Hangover Part Three. Well, that's why thought, you still like him. That's... I just thought I just felt like that was a premise that you couldn't really revisit again and again and expect it to be fresh. That was my feeling, yeah. and it sounds like I was right. You so, were right. Yes. Um, but I like the first Hangover, and I like I like Road Trip. Uh, weirdly enough. Yeah. So. <laughs> also did also directed old school and you know the the modern classic Starsky and Hutch. So you know, I, I I have not seen those. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's I think pretty, you're okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, so uh, before you head out, one more time, just let people know where they can follow you on Twitter. 
Uh, yeah, you, you can follow me. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Zukb, Z-U-K-B. And from there, you can see links to my Vimeo and my Letterboxd account. So, and you'll find all, like I said, you'll find all sorts of crap out there. So, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for returning to the show. And if all things work out, uh, Ben will be joining us again when we talk about one of his favorite movies, Nixon. <laughs> so I, I, I've already that. watched it once in preparation. And the next ben, you are the ready. <laughs> I, no, I'm not ready yet. But I will, I've, I've, I've got all, there's two commentary tracks on the oh, thing you can listen to. Both of them from Oliver Stone. I don't know why he needed two. Well, uh, he's got a lot to say, that Oliver Stone. <laughs> So uh, stay tuned for that. Ben, ben will return for sure. I'm really looking forward to it. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Now, if you're still listening and want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. As simple as going to followingfilms.com and listening to our other great shows like War Machine vs. Warhorse and the True Romance Film Podcast. Or follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. Or if you really want to go the extra mile, go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can donate on a per-episode basis. And you can get rewards for donating to the show for as little as a dollar an episode. So it adds up to just four dollars a month you can get some cool rewards and support a great podcast now the next time you hear me hopefully if i can whip mike into shape he will be doing a review of war dogs with me uh, which is of course what we tied in dog day afternoon to which is you know a little loose tie-in but i think it works all right so until then i will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch I thought you were going to say something like, "We now, we now talk only about chimpanzees." And now we relate to chimpanzees. So I hope you, I hope you know a lot about chimpanzees. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Not quite that bad. No. Okay. 